Good afternoon. Uh, this is a re-preaching of the sermon delivered on Sunday, July 30th at First Methodist Church in Clovis. Our scripture this morning uh, actually comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's good to be here with you all this morning. As we worship God together and as we gather here, uh, last week we wrapped up our sermon series where we were looking and going through the Old Testament prophet, uh, the book of Jonah, where we went through that book chapter by chapter and saw Jonah and uh, the message that God gave him and the way that God remained faithful even as Jonah struggled with the message that God had given him to share with the Ninevites. This morning, we're going to be starting a new sermon series. Uh, over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the more common board games that I would venture to say that many of us gathered here have played. I'm sure there are some that are more familiar to you. There may be a few that you choose not to play or have never played before. Uh, for me, myself, and I won't be preaching on it, but whenever a game of Clue gets started, you can bet that I will excuse myself from playing the game of Clue. Uh, and so as we look at the games, what I'd like us to do is for, I, to, for uh, us to spend some time seeing how uh, looking at the games and, and the way we play the game can help to get us thinking about God. And in thinking about God, it gets us thinking about how we connect to God, or maybe how we connect to faith, or maybe how we connect to Jesus. As we look at each of them and as we stay focused in God's Word, the Bible. Today I want to begin by starting with uh, the most important thing that refers to every game that we might play. And it's something that's so important that it's surprising that many of us do not do it when we play a board game. The most important thing usually comes in a legal-sized piece of paper. It's folded strategically to fit into a box that the game is packaged in. Often you cannot refold it the way they folded it at the factory, nor can you get it to fit in the spot or box where it came originally. Depending on the game, it may be printed in different languages on different columns on the paper. And so it's important, and it is an important thing to look at because it's the instructions. You have to know the instructions and the rules of a game before you play them even if the game is one that you have played for many, many years. One of the things that Mindy and I enjoy doing, and we've done throughout our marriage, and I guess before our marriage, and then uh, with the girls, is we often play games with family members and with our friends. And one of the things that Mindy and I have had to learn deals specifically with the rules and with the instructions of games. We have learned that sometimes it's worth it to take a moment at the beginning of a game before you start in order to clarify the rules and the instructions before you play the game. It might sound silly, but for many of us, especially if it's a game that perhaps you've played, played for a number of years with your family or with a certain group of friends, if you're like us, I think you might find that there are unofficial rules or unofficial interpretations of rules 
that we play within our family and friends that are not either official rules or they are played differently amongst other groups. And so that means within your family unit, within your group, within this gaming group, you sit down in the table and you don't need to mention the rules. They're commonly known. Everyone knows them. Everyone can be expected to abide by and follow by them without anything being said. But however, you get with a different group and your unofficial rules are the ones that you play on. You might be accused of cheating or there could be an argument. And so what I'm saying is the rules and the expectations of the rules have to be clear in the beginning. And that's why it's important for us to read the rules. I was thinking, and I have a couple of examples of this. The first uh, was uh, someone who married into our family. She was uh, my brother's first wife. And, and one of the things we always enjoyed doing with her and it was playing the card game Phase 10. And the card game Phase 10, I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. And, and what we learned in beginning to play with her is that uh, there were two different interpretations on uh, how you were able to play once you laid your cards down. There was our interpretation that our family had always played and that was correct. And there, there was the other one. And I don't remember whose was what, uh, because we, we played back, forth, we played both versions. But what we quickly learned is we had to learn to define which set of rules we were playing at, at the beginning of the game. So we had to decide if you laid your cards down on the board, meaning you've finished your phase, were you allowed to play on other people's phases to go out immediately, or did you have to discard and let it go around the table again until your next turn where you could play on other people's cards and then go out. It may sound minor, but we had some heated discussions around that rule in the beginning. And after that, we just learned to clarify what it meant, how we were going to play as a group. Everybody was cool, and we had some great games. I have another more fun example that uh, helps to clarify rules ahead of time. This one's a little more humorous, and uh, in, in 2016 or 2017, uh, you know, when my, my grandmother passed away in uh, 2018, um, but we used to go and, and visit her in Las Cruces and see my parents, you know, once or twice a year. Um, and so it was in probably 2016 or 2017 when she was still able to play games and, uh, and was still able to, to leave um, her retirement home. And so we'd gone to visit my parents and to see my grandmother. And most nights we played Mexican Train, the, the domino games. So it would have been my grandmother and Mindy and I and my parents. And then I can't remember if the girls uh, were playing with us. Some nights they played, some nights they didn't. It just kind of depends. And that night as we played, um, I just remember Mindy and I hearing my dad roll off the scores as he was keeping score and my grandmother's score never lining up with the way we were watching her play. And so as we looked, and then we looked at each other, and I could see it, you know, and both of us, without saying anything, are thinking, what in the world is happening? This is not lining up. Her score, there's no way her score is, is, is this low. So we kept watching throughout the game and looking, and at the end of the night, my mom got in the car to take my grandmother home, and they left. And so we asked, and my dad said, oh, yeah, I should have told you. Uh, some nights when Grammy's here, I adjust her score so that she's more in it than she normally is. Um, my grandmother used to be a game player. Like, she could win games outright. She was very strategic. But in 2016, 2017, whenever this date was, I mean, she just wasn't at the same level she used to be. And so my dad would give her a little help, which was fine. Although Mindy and I uh, sure would have appreciated knowing ahead of time what was going on so that we could also know that we weren't going crazy ourselves. 
So as we're working through this sermon series, I want us to, to think about the rules and to talk about the rules for these games. And I want us to remember that it's important for us to immerse ourselves in the word of God, which gives us the rules for life. And when I say immerse, I don't mean walking around and carrying our Bible and having it with us, but I mean actually opening it and reading it and listening to it. We may think we know what the Bible says, just like we might think we know what rules to a game are. We may think we know what the words say. We may be right in knowing what we think the Bible says. But I think it's also easy for us to recognize and to realize and to admit that there are times then we may not know what the Bible says. And in those times, we can find ourselves easily misled or at least inaccurate in knowing the word of God if we're not reading it. Without grounding ourselves in God's word, we easily can find ourselves in following a different set of rules that are not biblical. Or maybe they're pseudo-biblical. And what I mean by that is they sound Bible-ish enough to be close to the word of God, but they're not. And so when we're not immersed in that, we get misled. We lose track of what God wants for us. We lose track of where we are in our relationship with him. And so this morning, I want us to begin this series with a fun game that I think many of us have seen or played. And if you read the history of this game, there have been multiple versions of the game. In fact, if you read about it, there's a similar version or a prototype that is similar that's attributed to Benjamin Franklin that he developed in the 1700s. But the game's first official history lists it being developed in 1962 at the University of Illinois when a grad student in the electrical engineering program named John Spirello designed a game for a class project called Death Valley. In his game, you as the player were stranded in Death Valley. And so in this charged board, there were different holes with metal edges and, and the board was charged with electri electricity. And your purpose or the plan or to play the game, you were to reach into these different holes to get water and to get food and to get other items to survive being stranded in Death Valley. Sparello sold his idea for $500 and they hired him uh, to Milton Bradley in 1965. And they redesigned his original idea into the game called Operation, where a man who's called uh, Cavity Sam, which I didn't know, lies on the waiting table awaiting for the players to remove his different maladies symbolized by the different plastic pieces. Since 1965, this game has had many different versions, all based on a wired board, a light, a buzzer, and tweezers meant to grasp plastic objects. The game, as you can see on the screen, or if you Google it, uh, you can see that it's been produced with many different versions or themes. There's a Simpsons version, Star Wars, Despicable Me, SpongeBob SquarePants, and many others that I haven't listed. All of these games, all of these themes have the same goal. You draw the card. The card tells you which piece you are to try and retrieve from the board. You attempt to retrieve it from the board, and you either get it out without setting off the buzzer, or you don't. The game's pretty fun. It brings some good laughs as we watch each other attempt to get the pieces out without the setting off of the buzzer and also the light. Now, here's where we think about it with Scripture. And here's where I think this game can help us tie into our understanding of the Bible. As Christians, we may find ourselves in similar positions to operation, where maybe we pick up a card, a metaphorical card, and we choose what needs to be taken out, or where we select 
what we think matters most to God in the lives of other people and what, and what doesn't. And so we're liable to do that ourselves, as well as toward others, as we look at the decisions that they make, as we look at what they eat, as we look at how they exercise, as we look at how they work or don't work or whatever it is in the day, we're liable to do that. And if we look at Matthew 7, which is our gospel reading today, part of the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus is speaking to uh, people that he knew. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus has, has been raised in this community of faith. He's been raised in this Jewish community. He's been around these Pharisees and other people his whole life. And so he knew the church in his time. He knew his followers. He knew the opposition. He knew the Pharisees. He knew the teachers of the law. And he also knew of ordinary people. And he knew how easy it is for all of us to fall prey to this. Whether we're highly religious and highly righteous like the Pharisees or whether we're just ordinary men and women following Jesus. He knows how easy it is for us to look at the temptation and to look at the sin of others and to identify in our eyes their shortcomings and their faults. While at the same time overlooking our own. This is operation on our scale, isn't it? On a life scale. It's operation on a faith scale. It's focusing on the speck in another's eye. It's picking and choosing. It's looking for the cracks in their armor. It's asking and, and looking at ourselves and saying, why do I focus on the speck and what's going on in someone else's life while ignoring my own? Why am I looking for the cracks in their armor without really looking and seeing that my armor is falling completely apart? Why do I identify the fault of others in their actions, their words, or their decisions without weighing that and looking at my own? Why do we try to pick out the one thing? Running the risk of hitting the edge, completing the circuit, and causing the buzzer to buzz Why the light flashes. See, friends, here's the truth. Is that you can find a critic for everything you do and say. That's just the truth. That means you can do all the good in the world. You can work as hard as possible to complete a project or a task. And I'll bet money that there's going to be something critical that someone else can say. The opposite of that is we ourselves may also find ourselves in that place where we're always looking to be critical of others, to where we're always looking for that opportunity to point out the flaw in their life. We may unintentionally set out to do so, but if we're intentionally looking to find a flaw in what someone else says, wears, or does, I can guarantee that you're going to find something. Because that's what you're looking for. And because none of us is perfect. And that's just like operation. When we look at others solely focused on what is wrong with them, or looking for something that we are aiming to be critical of, you run the risk of missing the things that you need to be working on or running the risk of seeing the things and, and the blessings and the way that God is working in their lives or maybe even God's working in your own. That's why Jesus went to the Pharisees and the legal experts, the teachers of the law on this, basically telling them that they're unable to, to do anything in the eyes of other people, of helping them to see, of helping them to live righteously because they are so blind to their own faults that they are rendered unable to do anything for others. 
You know, we might think it's easier for a log to be removed. But we all know the truth. Is that it's much harder for us to focus on ourselves and our shortcomings. We don't like to feel uncomfortable. We don't want to be fixed. We don't want to have to spend the time to be fixed or to evaluate ourselves or to uh, humble ourselves or to give Jesus and God the dominion over our lives. And so our answer to that is it's just way easier for us to focus on others. And then if we're focusing on others, we falsely give ourselves the impression or the added benefit of not being uncomfortable because we're too busy looking at them. But see, here's the reason Jesus told this story as part of the Sermon on the Mount. And really it ties into the entire Sermon on the Mount and really his, his entire gospel message. Because the only sin you can worry about is your own. You can't grow in your faith as a Christian, in your spiritual walk, in your spiritual growth, in your knowledge of God, in your relationship with God, in your being in faith with God, in, in anything. If you're focused on the sin of others, that doesn't help you to grow. It doesn't help you to, to, um, to, to do anything positive for you. Because the only person that you can change is yourself. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you focus on what's going on in the lives of others, the only person you can change is yourself. In his letter to the Romans, uh, Paul wrestled with this. As he's writing to the early Christian church and as he's wrestling with you know, the, the different groups that have come to be a part of this Christian community. And, and so, you know, as, as Paul's hearing of, of their struggles and what they're doing, he writes in this, this huge treatise to the Romans that all have fallen short, or all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So as they're wrestling with, with who's in and who's out, as they're wrestling with what's important and what's not, Paul very early in this letter says, everyone's a sinner. All of us. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All are just as dependent on the grace of God as everyone else. And he says all of us need forgiveness. We all need God. We all need grace. And that's why he says that all have sinned. You'll notice that Paul doesn't spend time saying that those uh, who, who can justify their sin are excused. Or he says that if you have a special reason for your son not being a sin that you're excused. He says all is all. And in Paul saying all, if you think about it, as followers of Jesus Christ, it actually makes our job easier. Because we're all in the same place. We're all in sin. We're all sinners. And we all need God's grace. We all need Jesus to make us whole. But where it gets tricky in reading Jesus' words is he tells the Pharisees this, and also for us believers today, is that there's a higher expectation for those who already know him and for those who have experienced his grace. 
See, friends, it's easy for us to say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all of us need the grace of God without continuing to say and to realize and to recognize that what Jesus is saying to the early church, and he's saying, if you're a follower of me and if you've received this gift of grace that I've given you, then I expect you to change. I don't expect you to be stuck in your sin, continually doing the things that you know hurt me or get between my relationship with you. Jesus expects us to change because we've been forgiven. And he doesn't expect us to receive this grace and this forgiveness and not change. He expects us to be different. He expects us to live differently. He expects us to follow him differently. And he expects us to look to him and to look to the word of God in our lives, to live by the instruction manual that he has provided. A manual that tells us how to live and that tells us how we can receive the grace that God gives us through his son, Jesus. You know, we all know what the Bible says about sin. We all know what the Bible says about falling short of him and about needing his grace. But here's the awesome thing. We also know that right after Paul writes to the Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he continues by saying, All are treated as righteous freely by his grace because of the ransom paid by Christ Jesus. Folks, Jesus doesn't need us to keep track of the sins of other people. He just needs you to work on your own. And while you do that, he needs all of us to acknowledge that we are sinners and we need his grace. God doesn't expect us to remove the sin from others. He knows that we cannot do that for them. But he does know that we can be a a witness to his mercy and to his perfect grace while acknowledging that we are imperfect and in need of his grace. Amen.